Better Call Saul Season 5, Episode 10. And Better Call Saul Season 5 overall is over, but we're just getting started here at Post Show Recaps. Hello again, everyone. I am Antonio Mazzaro. I am here to talk about Better Call Saul Season season 5, Episode 10, Something Unforgivable with Someone Forgivable. Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? What did I do that requires forgiveness? Nothing. You're very forgivable. You're eminently forgivable. Like even if you did, it's my curse. Even if you did transgress in some horrible way, like for example, you filled my pool with chlorine, or you caused me to rub nair all over my body, and like my name was Mike Bloom, Mm -hmm. I think we would be fine. I think we would be fine. You were someone forgivable. Oh my god! Have you ever done the nair trick to anybody? No, nor nor have I seen it done. But I suppose it is something that has happened. It's very legendary, right? Yeah, it's it's like like it lives in the realms of Saran wrap over the toilet seat or whatever. Yeah, I've never seen that in action either. But you got to imagine Jimmy McGill has put the has put the nair to some use, and it sounds like uh, Kim Wexler. Curious to try the nairing or something even more unforgivable yeah. than that. As uh, Yeah, Antonio, we've got a lot to talk about here on what's going to be our first pass uh, of at least two passes through the season five finale and season five overall. These are kind of our, our quick from the hip reactions to the season five finale uh, with some some deeper material, some deeper diving to do still uh, with your boy and mine. Uh, the great Rob Sesternino, who will return to the podcast uh, for a feedback show we're going to do a little bit down the line. Looking forward to that. Definitely yeah, B- looking BCS forward to that. BCS at postshowrecaps.com. Send your feedback in that way. We're going to have Rob here. It's going to be a good time. And I mean, obviously, there are big headlines to talk about. But as far as the season finale goes, I think this will be one that generates a lot of feedback because it is sort of a where do we go from here moment uh, that we see for a lot of the characters. What we didn't get, of course, we didn't get our hashtag gene scene. So we know we're probably going to get one of those to open next season. And then as we've talked about, especially you've talked about, we probably will see more of those maybe throughout the course of next season, uh, because where we leave the characters right now, Josh, we're at a path we had speculated throughout that what we would see from a Gene scene would be Gene reaching out to a Kim Wexler who maybe was in her hometown, uh, maybe had been hoovered somewhere by a disappearing artist. Uh, the Kim Wexler we see at the end of season five does not appear to be a damsel in distress in any way. No, it doesn't seem like she is going anywhere unless she doesn't have much of a say in the matter. Right. And Kim Wexler without a say in the matter is an unrecognizable Kim Wexler uh, as, as it stands. Um, Kim, wow. I mean, if, if Better Call Saul was kind of pitched as Jimmy McGill's Breaking Bad story, right? This is how one man becomes Saul Goodman. This is how one man breaks bad all the way from, you know, kind of uh, like a, a, a lawyer who participates in some, uh, some unpalatable uh, activities here and there, uh, but is still a far cry from being the, the, the consigliere of the Heisenberg family. Um, if this has been that story, I think what maybe has been somewhat sneakily, certainly has, has across this season been taking me by surprise, uh, has been that, yeah, this is... Kim Wexler's been breaking bad, bro. Uh, and uh, by the end of the season, some of the stuff that she's talking about here with what she wants to do to, to, to do something that Jimmy describes as it would be something unforgivable to, to Howard Hamlin uh, in order to, to loosen the strings on that Sandpiper deal, right? And free up some of that money right. so that she can then use that money to... She's, like, t- she's talking about like Robin Hood if Robin Hood did some like 
really effed up shit to the <laughs> to the rich people he was stealing from instead yeah. of just like loosing some pouches of gold right. uh like if he was also like pooping in their in their bedrooms and doing like all sorts <laughs> of other horrible things like she is talking about uh you know uh robin hood who's broken bad and it's just such a stark image the end of uh of this season i guess really the the end end of the season is Lala Salamanca, uh, you know, miraculously for him, terrifyingly for for everybody else, unscathed physically at least from the assassination attempt and and walking out into the unknown, and that in its own way is sort of like a Hank Schrader taking a crap and having a holy shit moment uh, at the end of season four, I believe it was, uh, or the midway point, sorry, of season five, um, heading into the to the home stretch of Breaking Bad. This felt similar to that in that like. The boogeyman's coming back, uh, whether, whether or not it's for Jimmy and Kim or if it's for Gus or if it's for Nacho or if it's somehow uh, the perfect swirl of all of these people. Um, the boogeyman is coming, and that is something that we have to contend with in the final season. But that final image before that is this final conversation with Jimmy and Kim in the hotel room after Jimmy has basically tried to break up with Kim. Kim is not having it. Kim is not allowing that to happen. And indeed, she wants to push this idea of like, basically, let's get that sandpiper money. Let's ruin Howard Hamlin because he had the nerve to come to me and and try and look out for me. Uh, And when Jimmy is the one who's saying like, you're not really seriously considering this, are you? And she turns at him with like the finger guns, the pow, pow. Uh, and then she goes back into the bathroom and the way that the camera is lingering on Jimmy, if this isn't the fun house mirror of the way that we ended season four, right? Uh, the same with, fingers, you know, with the way that, yeah, uh, it's all good, man. And then right. lingering on Kim, uh, it's Definitely. now Jimmy who is horrified of Kim. And that is kind of a horrifying prospect. It is. <sighs> For me, it's funny because I know we've talked about and you just mentioned that Better Call Saul is the story or has now become uh, part in part the story of Kim Wexler breaking bad to a certain extent. A lot of these characters are facing up with this. We've talked about how that works with Mike, um, with Jimmy, with Nacho, with all these characters getting further and further into the game as we're seeing in the prequels. We can't really forget, though, that this is a Kim Wexler um, who, like in season two, episode nine, the nailed episode where Chuck is really facing off with Jimmy over whose client Mesa Verde will be. And Jimmy has already pulled the old switcheroo at the co- at the copy place. And Jimmy and Kim are sitting in bed and Kim gives Jimmy the Lady Macbeth thing. And she basically says like, hey, the Lady um, Macbeth thing, like that's yes, like a, a she gives thing him the Lady Macbeth thing. Yes, yeah, that oh is look it up hate, on Urban Dictionary. I hate when I get the Lady Macbeth thing. Yes, uh, spots everywhere. Very difficult treatment. Yes, (laughs) can't get them out. Uh, She basically says, your brother is a smart lawyer. He'd make quite an adversary. And Jimmy's not picking up on what Kim is saying. And Kim says, the kind of adversary who would find the smallest crack in your defense. Uh, Maybe going against him, you you would want to make sure you had all your I's dotted and all your T's crossed. And then she all but looks at him and says, go to that copy shop and shut that guy up before Chuck gets to him. She says, nothing for him to find. This is the Kim Wexler that we have experienced throughout Better Call Saul. I just think that version, it's mask off. Uh, And I know you had a conversation with Ray Seahorn about this and about the masks and whether it's mask off or whether it's putting on masks moment to moment, what her thoughts are and her process and the way she looks at Kim Wexler. Um, But clearly, this is something that is in the DNA of Kim Wexler, the character. Um, We're just seeing it really sort of emerge. She is uh, awake, Josh, uh, and she is really spreading her wings here. 
for sure. I am awake. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, as soon as she starts celebrating her birthday with uh, bacon numbers, then I, I think <laughs> that's the point where we know we're really uh, in danger. Yes, the BNBD. Um, the BBBNBD. But, but I think that one of the things that's really effective about this finale uh and I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm measuring it, engaging it myself as I'm saying the words because look the the Lala Salamanca stuff very explosive. Uh, the text exchanges between Antonio and I these are for our uh, two hundred thousand dollar patrons uh, for for these text exchanges. Uh, Antonio, you were like, are, am I watching Better Call Saul or am I watching Sicario right now? <laughs> Absolutely, like it really it, it really took a turn with the big action scene. Um, at, at Lawless Likes, of which we haven't seen on the show since, oh, I guess two weeks ago. Uh, so, so this is starting to become a little more common. Um, but that's obviously explosive, and that's obviously very external. But a lot of the the needle moving in this episode was very internal and subtle um, and amorphous and, and still of a shape and and physical quality that you can't quite put your hands on it yet. Um, I think that this is going to to require a lot of conversation, a lot of deep thought as we're starting to suss out what the final season of this show is going to look like. I mean, look, this isn't like Chuck knocking over the lamp at the end of season three and his house goes up in fire and you're left to wonder how is the death of Chuck McGill going to weigh on Jimmy and everybody else? I guess at the time, a little bit of debate of like, oh, maybe he didn't die. But like schmuck bait was the term that, that came out of that right. from the writer's room of Better Call Saul. So it's not like this. Uh, it's not like that. It's not like uh, season four's finale where uh, where Jimmy becomes Saul Goodman in name, where he says, I'm going to change my name legally. And now you know what that means because we've seen Saul Goodman before. So that is the that is the world we're dealing with is we're we're one step closer to the promise of the show. Um, there isn't like really a name to put on this. There isn't like a fancy, you know, there is not like some sort of like bright colored bow you put on the season five finale. Uh, there isn't like a secretly recorded conversation here. I think that the much of like, like you mentioned, I spoke with Ray Seahorn. That interview is up at the Hollywood reporter. Um, and in that conversation, we talked about how, um, she played that moment to moment. Uh, oftentimes she was playing that stuff in this episode sort of like line by line to try and see what was the truth for Kim at that point. Even for the actor, it was very intangible. It was very up for interpretation. That's the quality of finale we are left with. We're not left with like, Kim's going to become some super genius evil lawyer. We're not left with Kim's going to do something to Howard Hamlin. We're left with two sort of nebulous finger guns that she's shooting at Jimmy. And we now have to debate what are the ramifications of that going to be? And what will the ramifications of that be um, in tandem with this monster who has just been deeply wronged? Something unforgivable has happened to Lala Salamanca. And how is that train going to come colliding with the Jimmy train as well? So a lot of like dread, but I think less tangible dread than maybe we're used to, which almost makes this finale a little scarier to me. Do you think the general consensus will be one of fear and concern for those subtleties? Or do you think people uh, will be let down because they were expecting more or Probably. something different? Probably. Yeah. Probably would be my bet. Uh, I, I think, um, 
you, you, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil other shows, other than to say, like, I think often you find, uh, certainly not in Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad's a big exception to this because the season four finale uh, is so explosive. And even if you consider like the final season of Breaking Bad uh, being cut in half as like two seasons, then that mid-season finale is very explosive as well in its own right, depending on the quality of what was happening in Hank's uh, belly, uh, but also in terms of the size of the reveal uh, that uh, WW is Walter White. Um, but a lot of a lot of the shows that you and I really enjoy that have deeper runs. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Justified. I'm thinking specifically of The Americans. Have penultimate seasons that are maybe less celebrated than some of the other seasons, um, and largely are like bodies of work that exist to like move the greater body of work into the end game. Like there's almost a sense that like these penultimate seasons are almost like chess chess pieces moving seasons. Um, and I think it's funny that I think that we can probably, when, when we're at the end of this, we may be able to say something similar to that, uh, to that effect about better call Saul and its penultimate season, that this was a season that pushes better call Saul into the place that it absolutely needs to be. So that a lot of the things that you and I have been talking about this season, the danger surrounding Kim, whether or not we should be afraid for Kim or afraid of Kim, that these are things that I think that we have been expecting to come to roost within the context of the season, but why is that the unit of measurement? Why isn't it? Why isn't the unit of measurement something different, episodic, uh, especially when there is still a full season of TV still to go? Um, I think that because of television structure, you are um, at the, the royal you as a TV viewer, you are trained to expect massive movement in a finale. Um, and I think often that is rewarded. And often I think that expectation is fair. Um, but I don't think it's it's unfair of a finale to then give you something that is that is different and darker, if quieter, uh, the way that I think this one did. So for me, as somebody who is, um, as we talked about last week, I'm just leaning in more and more and more into Better Call Saul. I think what they're doing here is really, really mesmerizing. And I actually think that even if this is kind of a chess pieces season... I still think after this finale, the position holds for me that this is the best season of the show for sure. Uh, and that I actually think that maybe when we get to it, like the whole show is chess pieces. You know, the whole thing. Right. Has it been is pushed. a prequel after all. You know, like the whole thing. Uh, right. It's that slow motion car wreck. Uh, that everything has been that piece of the van falling off of the bridge in Inception. Uh, and like it's all happening very, very, very slowly. And so much is happening within that fall. Um, that for me, this finale, I found to be uh, as delicious as a green chili burger at whatever the frick hotel they were staying at. Which, by <laughs> the way, that burger sounded awesome. It really and I wanted yeah, It sounded really, cheddar. really yeah. good. Mm. But I can totally understand if it leaves something to be desired for a certain sect of the, of the fandom. Um, and I am, uh, as I often say in these moments, my, my heart goes out to those people and I'm very glad to not be among your number because I'm really satisfied by this. Well, and we have to keep in mind a year from now until the end of eternity, whenever that is in right. two years or three years or 50 years or never starting a year from now until the end of time, everyone else who watches this show will go from this episode right into the beginning of season six. 
We won't. We are the ones uh, who are in this moment thinking about the complications or the implications that are brought by this season of moving these pieces around the board, keeping some of them alive, like Lalo, um, having some of them get further, maybe to moving to the front of that van as it's falling down, uh, like we saw with Kim. Uh, we are the only ones for the next year who are going to have to deal with the weight. Uh, everyone else is just going to go right into season six, and this is just going to be another point of marcation. Uh, you're just going to pull out of the menu. You're going to go from season five to season six. It may play the next episode for you automatically. You may not even have to press a button. So you're right. The way TV is structured now, it's very unusual. Uh, and creators have to serve two masters. It's something I've talked about a lot on these podcasts here at Post Show Recaps. Um, the very difficult job that people have to do uh, when it comes to carrying water for the moment, but understanding that the vast majority of people who are going to drink that water will not be drinking it in the moment. They'll be drinking Drinking it over time, and so this will hit different uh, on 420 to those people uh, who <laughs> will watch it later. It will hit uh, different uh, because they won't be waiting. Old Josh Wiggler, who was having a, <laughs> could really use it. Uh, <laughs> in this old Josh age. Wiggler, he went by yeah. the initials just OJ, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. OJ Dubs. Yes, uh, yeah, RP to OJ. Yeah. Um, we're not breaking news on that, uh, but yeah, so it's going to hit different to those people, and so it is. It is a very difficult task, I think, to meet all those expectations. For me, uh, I, I, you know, I would be interested in feedback, uh, and we can't really know until we watch the entire series if we would agree that uh, having a gene scene in the finale would be different than having it at the beginning of next season, uh, where we should move the ball on that, what secrets were being kept by moving the gene scene along. Maybe Kim's not involved at all. Maybe we've been, we've been uh, tilting at windmills with that. We, we have no idea. Uh, it, it makes sense, I think, that some of the major characters survived, that we didn't get a wrap-up with Nacho and Papa, for example, oh, and that we have God, what we have instead. Well, what I'm we have instead is a huge up, sense of dread <laughs> going into season six. We're pushing a lot of these pieces further down the board, knowing their fates are probably not good. Uh, but no. we're we're we are dealing with a lot of that. For me, there's a lot of fascinating Putting all that in the in the frunk of the car. Yes, put it in the frunk. Exactly, Don Eladio's favorite part of the car. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we. Uh, for me, there's a lot of fascinating stuff just in the moment. To moment and i i thought what uh you know your your talk that you had with ray seahorn um i just thought she was really re- really revealed a lot of you know she doesn't know as they're going through what the full arc of kim is going to be uh the writers are letting essentially uh that play out uh they're letting the story find itself uh rather than writing toward uh clear end points uh and i think vince gilligan talked about this with regard to breaking bad right he said his only real big regret was putting the gun in the trunk at the beginning of those in, in the final season because then they had to get to a point where they had the gun in the trunk and maybe they didn't feel like they needed to get there by the time they actually got there. So I think it's interesting. uh, And I think there's a lot of great mirroring in this writing. Um, When Tim previously in this, in the series, you've cited a lot, her saying to Jimmy, you don't save me. I save me. And what we're maybe seeing a little bit in Kim's story is you don't ruin me. I I ruin ruin me. It's the inverse, right? If Kim is the one who saves Kim, Kim is also the one who ruins Kim. And I think this goes along the lines with Mike's bad choice road speech from a couple of episodes ago there's a bad there's a there's a there's a road, road. and yeah, there's, there's a bad choices, road there's the good yes. choice road there's yeah. a bad road 
Well, it goes right along with that, right? Like the, the, Tim set these events in motion long ago when I was pointing to season two, episode nine, with her complicit uh, treatment of the Mesa Verde heist, if nothing else. Um, she felt like she earned it. She deserved it. She, what, what, the reason she left HHM to begin with is she worked her ass off to get out of, uh, out of, the, out of the fields at HHM and back into the control. Uh, and where she got instead uh, was Howard kept her in the dark like a mushroom. Uh, even though she brought Mesa Verde in. And this was a, a great sin in her mind. Uh, and it was such a sin that she was ready to part HHM. No, she didn't listen to Jimmy and go into a law partnership with Jimmy. She knew that wouldn't work. But yes, she said, I'm unhappy at HHM. I worked my ass off for that client. You didn't give me any credit for it. I'm done. Uh, I'm done. So I, I think the Kim story has been a story. This is not something where they're just pushing these pieces on a board in the fifth season so that they can get to a point in the sixth season. I think this is a natural evolution that we're seeing from this character. I think the mirroring is really, really good uh, in terms of the you don't save me, I save me. You don't ruin me, I ruin me. But also the mirroring in terms of the manipulation. Uh, yes, she does the finger guns at Jimmy, uh, and she gives him a very similar gesture to what he gave her at the end of the previous season. Uh, but there are there's these manipulative moments uh, that I think we would credit more to Jimmy McGill. I mean, look, let's talk about Sandpiper. She wants to reopen the Sandpiper case or she wants to get it settled. When I say reopen, I mean, she's trying to tread on the same ground Jimmy McGill already did. She laughs, Josh, such an evil giggle when she says, yeah, you didn't do it right, though. Like, I, I know I would do it better. OK, right. Uh, so this is this is we're, we're going back to the same places, but with different characters uh, and in different ways. And I just think that's really interesting from a writing perspective. And totally. I don't need I don't need the big moment of Kim being swept away uh, by the, you know, by Robert Forster here uh, to, to get that interesting level of saying, man, this is fascinating. And I don't know the the parts of Kim Wexler that are coming out here, uh, but this is dark. <laughs> like Breaking Bad pushed that all the way to the end of the line, basically, right? Yeah. I mean, like uh, the the episode that people walk away from Breaking Bad feeling like it's the best episode of the series, or at least it's a it's it's an episode that's often mentioned in that conversation is the one where the chickens do come home to roost, and that's Ozymandias. But that's, you know, there's only two episodes left after that. Um, So, you know, the types of things that you're mentioning that could be kind of epically satisfying or, like, culminating at least, if not satisfying, you know, I I don't think I'm going to feel satisfied if Kim gets relocated via Ed Galbraith. You know, if the vacuum cleaner, uh, you know... Uh, you know, sucks her up and spits her out in Omaha or whatever. You know, like I don't know, I'll feel satisfied, but that'll be uh, a, a culmination of a lot, and that could be pretty far down the line if we're following a Breaking Bad blueprint. Um, that's not necessarily something that's going to happen here in the season five finale. Uh, that could be material that is coming up much further down the line. Um, I don't know. It's just it's. It's fascinating stuff, man, uh, where where we've left these characters, what we're pushing towards heading into a sixth season. Uh, it's just it's very it's very wrenching. It's very unnerving. Uh, and I'm really excited about it in in a way that I think, as you say, is going to be different from how people are going to feel about it, um, watching it note to note, you know, being able to go in and read this whole book. Once the whole book is available. Um, but I do think I'm appreciating it on a different level because I I had read, you know, the first, you know, 
you know, you know, the first four books in this in this uh, in this series in such rapid succession um, with going through one through four so quickly. That's a different show. Succession. I know. Rapid succession. It's succession on like two X speed. Oh, that's not worth doing. <laughs> Cousin Greg would be really funny. though. Um, <laughs> he I, said I, something I, else and I'll try and remember what it is I wanted to react to. But you, you had you had something else that you mentioned that triggered something very very real within me and I, and I've lost it. So hopefully I'll, I'll pick well, it back up. Cause I I'm curious. I, I am to. curious. Um, the just generally when you, we talk about Kim moment to moment, mask on mask off, uh, and glasses whether she's on, glasses off, whether she's, have we tried hair down glasses mask off? On, mask on, mask, <laughs> on, mask up. <laughs> we tried lights off podcast. No, mask mic always off. on. Keep the mask on. Oh yeah. Good point. Good point. Mask Socially on. distance. Mask uh, on. my, <laughs> My question in the spirit of Abigail Bartlett from the West Wing is how long has that been up her ass? Like how long has Kim been thinking about the Sandpiper settlement? Is this something to you in your mind that just occurred to her as she was talking to Howard Hamlin a couple episodes ago when she quit Mesa Verde, Jimmy said, uh, what's your plan? You know, what's your plan? That's a, you know, you're going to PD cases. That doesn't keep the lights on. What's your plan? And I thought he was a real dickhead for saying that yeah. considering he just risked life and limb to bring home a year's salary. Uh, but I, Kim's plan, I wonder when this was her plan. Like, I wonder how long it's been something that sticks in her crawl, that Jimmy's got this, you know, one to $2 million uh, honeypot that will come in when this settlement comes through, uh, and that that would enable her, tapping into that money would enable her. She's the one who brought up getting married. Uh, she's the one who brings up Sandpiper in this episode. Is this something you think she just thought of when Howard pissed her off at the courthouse, or is this something you think that she's been thinking about a while vis-a-vis her pro bono practice? She had that plan right away. I don't, I don't think that the, well, listen, there aren't, this isn't a comic book. There aren't thought balloons popping up over the characters' heads. Uh, this is not you like. You didn't get that version? No. My, my, oh, it was on mine. <laughs> this isn't, you know, Sex in the City. We're not getting like Carrie Bradshaw-esque monologues about like, what do you do when you come into $1.2 million? Like there's <laughs> nothing, there's nothing like that. Um, but with that said, there isn't enough on the show that connects to me that she's been thinking about Sandpiper all the way through. What does connect to me is that Kim and Jimmy have fairly legendary pillow talk. Uh, they have fair, fairly legendary, like intimate moments where they talk scenarios through all the way down the line. And that Kim is in a moment right now where, and this is something that Ray Seahorn spoke with me about is like, She's been trying to do things by the book and look at where it's gotten her. If she tried to do things fully by the book at the start of the season, which is a big contrast to where she ends up at the end of the season. Um, if she tried to do things by the book and just like let this guy like take himself to trial, he'd be thrown into jail. Uh, and instead, she goes with like the Jimmy plan of like uh, convincing this guy to like take the deal. Uh, yeah, but she was super upset about that. Like she was super time, upset at yes. the time. At yes, the time. At the time. Right. And I think where we're at with her now over the course of the season and something that has been so gradual as to like not even like fully know that this is what's been going on is I think her accepting that the way that Jimmy does things gets results. And we even had a conversation about this, I think, in the season four finale or very close to the season four end game, which is like, I don't want to do anything like this ever again. Right. When they're at the diner together, it's like, I don't want to do anything like this. And I don't want to do this anymore for no reason. Uh, for There's no reason I want to do it again. And now she's doing this type of stuff again. She's talking about doing it on a very grand scale. 
but for herself she has like kind of come to grips with like uh there that it's machiavellian you know the ends justify the means and if she is going to you know to to dunk on howard hamlin in this way uh then she's going to you know put it to good use but i don't think it's like I don't think it's been like a long simmering premeditated thing any more than the way that she stands against Lalo Salamanca is a premeditated, um, you know, takedown. I think for her, it's in the moment she's taking the pieces that are there and assembling it into, uh, you know, an effective weapon for the moment. You know, she doesn't know what Lala is coming to the house with. She doesn't know that Lala is coming over. She reacts in the moment with all the skills that are at her disposal, and she comes out with something very sharp. Um, I think that that's where she is right now, that, like, morally, ethically, she's at the point where she's willing to apply, willing and ready to apply some Jimmy-style tactics to something pretty big involving Sandpiper. That's an ingredient on the table. That's been on the table. And I don't think it's necessarily something that she's been thinking about for a long time so much as as they're talking this stuff through for her. She's like, oh, yeah, well, we could do that. That's a thing we can do. Um, The thing is, for me, like, I can't forget that she's still the Kim Wexler who did the Lady Macbeth thing in season two, that she's still the Kim Wexler who, when she wanted to, even though afterwards in the diner, after they were in Lubbock or wherever it was, and they pulled the scam with the breast milk and the additional plans and switched those documents out, that she's still that person who came to Jimmy and said, let's do this. Uh, She still willingly participated in what she participated in with Huel. Sometimes her ends are noble, uh, like it was with uh, Huel, and sometimes it's just to make a bank bigger. Uh, but I think she's always been involved in this sort of action as just a thing that she likes to do. And as we've talked about, and we see it in this episode, just the mere idea of these sort of shenanigans is a turn on to them. Uh, we see them talking about the sort of things they could do to Howard Hamlin, and we have a jump cut to them being in bed, continuing the conversation. We yada yada through the best part, but it happened. Uh, and it happened right after that conversation with full bellies, mind you, with full bellies, which everyone knows is not ideal. Um, mm-hmm. But they had full <laughs> right. bellies and they jumped yeah. right into bed Burger and smashed. And, they and, smashed. And, yeah. and then after they smashed, they continued their conversation and then they had dessert later. Uh, but still, not ideal. And yet it was that conversation that led to it, just like it always does for her. And uh, this is a Kim who is talking about when she's talking, when you're talking about the ends justifying the means and you're talking about her accelerating this and trying to create a pro bono practice with all this money and her saying, oh, well, you know, those seniors who were there, then maybe they'd lose two to three bucks, whatever it is. They'd still get all their money sooner. They'd be able to actually enjoy it and spend it. She is talking ends justify the means, but she goes across uh, the line a little bit and she you know, in a trolley problem way. So I'm going to save all these other lives by costing the one. And she's clearly pumping the gas on the trolley that is headed at the one life. When she says, we're talking about a career setback for one lawyer when she's talking about Howard Hamlin. And I can't help but be reminded of the Kim Wexler who several seasons ago, when it happened to Chuck in season three, when they did it, was so racked with guilt and yet maybe seemingly is over that now that it, she's not reminded of that in any way. Right. So I just think this, what we have in Kim Wexler is well, somebody. Well, Antonio, I've never killed a man. Um, <laughs> But we're not supposed to talk about that. But, well, yes. Uh, what it I wasn't under- a man. What I understand. <laughs> what I understand. Upstate New York, Stragoy, don't talk. Uh, what I understand from 
fiction, fiction likes to tell you this often, right? Like so whatever, like sort of like murder show, uh, whether it's a, a thriller or it's like a Game of Thrones or whatever, you always have some weary mercenary or some weary bad guy tell you like, it gets easier the more you kill. Yeah. Uh, and Chuck McGill was her first kill. So has it gotten easier? Has it gotten more palatable? Walter White was, you know, pretty shaken by what he did to Crazy Eight. Right. And then he, without blinking an eye, uh, sends 13 guys to Belize. Yeah, like exactly. In a, yeah. Exactly. In Godfather 1 style. Yeah, right. you're right. Uh, it's possible that that is, that is the case with Kim Wexler. I just, I'm not sure. And I thought, uh, again, I thought your talk with uh, Ray Seahorn was great on this front. I'm not sure she knows moment to moment. Right. I think her coping mechanisms have always been to throw herself headfirst uh, into the task at hand, whether it's uh, staying super late uh, and burning the candles at HHM to dig herself out of a problem, whether it's making all those calls with post-it notes all over the staircases in her spare time, skipping lunches, uh, crushing those documents for, what was it, Gatwood Oil or whatever it was, uh, and getting in the car wreck on the way there, she has always gone super head first and pursued these things often at her own uh, expense. And I don't think we're in any different territory in that regard here. She sees the goal, I think, as this pro bono thing and wanting to help these people out. And she's willing to do a lot to get there. Um, My question is, like, if those goalposts could be shifted, like, because she she seems to be shifting her morals in that regard, vis-a-vis you saying the first kill, Chuck McGill and all of that. Pretty soon, does it does it stop being, uh, you know, in in the way that Breaking Bad did with Walter White, cooking for his family and then getting to a certain number that he made up in his head, hitting that number and blowing past it and still not stopping? Uh, is it is it going to be for her a thing where okay, yeah, I get to focus on pro bono now. I have a good pro bono practice going. That wasn't what it was actually about. Right. She really enjoyed doing the things she was doing. Right. Uh, she liked it. She felt alive. Uh, if that's the story we're telling with Kim Wexler, I think it's important to look at where the other where the goalposts have moved previously because I think they can instruct where they may move in the future. And I'm so I'm just not sure that I know how in her head this sandpiper thing was. She was able to pull it out very quickly uh, and able to do the calculus on it so quickly that I think at least whether even she realized it or not, it's been part of her decision making uh, along the tracks of this process. Uh, And it is not something that just occurred to her out of them. She didn't look at an old person and say sandpiper. Uh, it's something that I think has been a part of her mental calculus, whether she's realized it or not. And I think that's the fascinating part is she may not even realize what she's in the middle of. And it may take till the end of the right. series, like it did with Walter, for her to realize, I liked it. it I did it for me. Right. Like that may be where we're headed with Kim. Not, that, not that something it's like more the, clear. It's like the quiet part out loud stuff. It's like right. the, sand, the sandpiper thing was something that like in her head, like she like could do that math quickly enough to be like, oh, well, if we had that money. This is something that I could do with my life, but never really entertaining the thought because maybe she's at a point where she's either ethically and morally opposed to going down that line or she's not ready yet to admit to herself that like, no, I would actually probably be all right with that. In fact, indeed, lo and behold, I enjoyed it. It's fascinating because in season two, I talk about season two, episode nine, but I know earlier in season two, like episodes like Bali High and some of those first three or four episodes of season two, uh, when Jimmy and Kim first get together and then are apart. 
Tim is very upset because of what's happened with Mesa Verde and because of what happened with the Kettleman's and because of everything that happened at HHM. Um, she's in the doghouse uh, and she's very upset with Jimmy and she's not taking Jimmy's calls. Uh, she, they're not living together. Jimmy's working at Davis and Maine, living in the company housing. Uh, Jimmy's calling her answering machine, leaving her messages. One of the things she says to him is I, something to the effect of, you know, let's see if you can just go like one day without breaking uh, the rules of the Bar Association of New Mexico. Uh, let's just see if you can do one thing. And that's when she gives that speech, like, you don't save me, I save me. Her problem with Jimmy at that point is how unethical he is. And I think what we're seeing out of Kim Wexler at best now is situational ethics. At best, it's the trolley problem. Yeah, I'll ruin Howard Hamlin, but I'll save dozens and dozens and countless other lives. So it's fine. Her ethics are situational at best now. And I think... I think she's pivoting to situational ethics just as her only shield. Uh, I think re- in reality, I think she's using a sword to cut through a lot of the bullshit uh, that she had built up around herself. And she has emerged from her chrysalis there in the darkness of HHM. Uh, and she's certainly a different person than she used to be. And I think we saw those notes before. And those notes that we thought were back notes are, in fact, the dominant notes of the character. Uh, at least for me, that seems to be what's coming to the forefront. Because it's, it's complicated, right? Even in this episode. Um, we have that weird sequence where she talks to the public defender lawyer and then he takes her into essentially where the bodies are uh, and says, these are all our cases, you know, take 20 of them. These are the bad ones. Uh, and she's saying she's looking for something specific, but she can't really seemingly articulate what that specific thing is that she's looking for. Cause I don't think Josh, that she really knows. Yeah. I think that that's fair. Um, yeah. And I, and I think to that point, like, I think that there may be a piece of her that feels like this has been this has been a gun on the table all along that I could pick up and use for this cause. And I can I can take whatever, you know, like doing the things that Jimmy does, but doing them for a greater good uh, for something that is not about like getting the nice house, like Jimmy says, you know, doing something that is like. Getting a, a shit ton of bun, uh, of money, a frunk ton of money, uh, <laughs> and loading up the frunk and, drive, and driving off with it, and and starting a pro bono practice, and getting like you know a closet at the courthouse to work out of, so that she can do this. Um, that for her, that she may be feeling like. I'm now at a point where I'm ready to take on like the karmic toll of doing the things that I have to do in order to get that done for, for, you know, the betterment of people, but that there is this visceral enjoyment that she gets out of this type of behavior um, that she herself is not willing to admit is like the driving thing. I don't think she knows yet. I don't think she knows the answer to that one either. Right. Um, I think, I think that, that's how Ray Seahorn. Uh, that's how Ray Seahorn describes the character uh, and her process with the character. Is she's not given the full arc of the character. Uh, she's playing it script by script and sometimes scene by scene and sometimes line by line within the scene. Um, as in everything that goes on in the hotel room uh, at the end of the Kim and Jimmy storyline. Um, and I think notable that this massive turn uh, for Kim is coming outside of the home. Uh, because that's been discussed as like the apartment that Jim, uh, that Jimmy and Kim share is sort of this sacred space. Well, they're like sort of like in this unholy ground. They're in this lavish hotel room uh, because of this dark activity that pushed them here. Right. 
uh, ordering room service, slurping up soupy ice cream. I'm just assuming it melted, uh, you know, and, (sighs) and coming up with this, this, this dark incantation on Howard Hamlin. Uh, you know, they may as well be like dropping some of his hair into a cauldron. You talk about the lady (laughs) Macbething. I believe that's what it, what it's like. Yeah. Um, some four, there are four rooms in that hotel. Uh, and this is the witchcraft one. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, I mean, you're right. Like, I think that's interesting to highlight that space, the way that the episode presents these events, of course, it gives them that sort of level of unholiness. It intercuts instead of having an extended sequence at the end with everything at uh, Lalo Salamanca's compound, it intercuts the drama of Lalo, literally life and death drama where people are being shot and burned with hot grease and other things like that. It intercuts that story with Jimmy and Kim talking about Howard Hamlin. So it puts it on that same level in that way uh, that is so dark. And it's interesting to me that Jimmy McGill, and we've talked about this and we'll, we'll get into how it impacts the Lalo and Nacho of it all in a moment here. Uh, but Jimmy McGill, as we've talked about in the Better Call Saul episode of Breaking Bad in season two, um, he mentions Ignacio and Lalo. Everybody knows about this at this point. It's been talked to death ad infinitum, that those are the names he comes up with when he's worried that he's been kidnapped and put in the desert. What that is said to us is that we believe that Jimmy at that point, as Saul, believes that Lalo and Nacho are alive. Um, and those are the guys that could do this to him. What that tells me, Josh, is that from wherever we are now until the beginning of Breaking Bad, um, which uh, we don't have the exact timeline on this, but it's a couple of years, I think. Tuco's going to get out yeah, of jail. Yeah, but it's, been, it's fudgy. Like, Tuco's going to get out of jail in yeah. 11 months. He's going to be out of jail from some for some undetermined period. Yeah. Crazy Eight's going to be out of jail. They're going to get their business back up. They're going to be in the game to some extent. The Salamancas are going to be there, but we're, we don't know how much time is going to pass. But in that time that does pass, it seems to me like the conversations that are had in this episode about Jimmy saying like, you know, I, I, when Kim says, you know, you did this, it's not going to happen again. And I'm thinking on one level, yeah, right. It's not going to happen again. Everyone in the room knows that's a lie. On the other hand, Jimmy, who's like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, that, that is true how that plays in the moment with the scene. But on the other hand, if Ignacio and Lalo are the names that Jimmy immediately goes to when he's taken out to the desert and that already happened on Better Call Saul, then is it really going to happen again before Breaking Bad? I'm not sure that it is. It's going to happen again with Walter White and Jesse. There's no doubt about that. But I think that it might be that Jimmy is so upset and scarred by what happened with Lalo and everything that happened to him in the desert that he's not going to go back there before we see him do it and Breaking Bad. I can think this might be it for him. And yet I feel like Kim has a long way to go uh, before she's at the end of her rope in terms of what she's capable of. I think we are only scratching the surface. Uh, I don't think she knows yet. I think Jimmy actually knows, and I think it's going to take him to some nebulous point in the future as Saul Goodman to get to the point where he's even comfortable making these comments to Walter White. I don't think it's going to be because he does a lot more business with drug cartels before then. He's a low-end kind of guy who has connections. His connections are Mike. He already has all those things. And the, the Jimmy McGill that's a personal injury lawyer in Breaking Bad is not the Jimmy McGill who is going to get over this uh, and continue to go on to a downward spiral in the co- the context of Better Call Saul. Kim Wexler, on the other hand, she is definitely headed that way. Uh, Lalo already called her Mrs. Goodman. Uh, so I, I think that she's got the name. She's going to get the reputation here pretty quickly. Uh, we got 13 episodes in season six. I think it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, 
Well, you the, specifically to, asked Ray Seahorn, I know, yeah. about our speculation about whether uh, she could be a friend of the cartel or a cartel lawyer. Uh, and, and she said she it was a great laugh about that, by the really? way, that won't translate to print. Uh, that like could have been construed as either like, uh-huh, <laughs> like, oh, my God, yeah, that might be where we're going. Or also like, you fan boy like I, I couldn't quite <laughs> i couldn't quite tell so i didn't push any deeper on it um but yeah she she did meditate on the idea of like what happens if kim's going deeper into the cartel and i think like her big takeaway on it was a uh the writers have as much respect and care and protectiveness over the kim wexler character as she does as an actor uh which is a really nice thing to hear and not anything that i disbelieve for a minute um, and that the ending for that character is going to be pretty, uh, pretty spectacular, basically no matter, no matter what. But the other thing that she said is like, I used to think that the tragic thing that would happen to Kim is what if she dies? But isn't it worse to like watch somebody erode in front of your eyes, like the erosion of somebody in front of you? Um, and yeah. that is what's happening with Kim. And it is like, it is harsh to watch. Uh, and just like masterfully executed as well. Antonio, you mentioned 13 episodes left in Better Call Saul in whatever, you know, distant future. Unlucky 13. Right. You know, whatever timeline that is for however long uh, productions are able to get up and running to the oh, level. Oh, we're going to get right back to work, Josh. Don't you worry about that. I'm not talking about that. Um, that at some point in the future, presumably, hopefully, Liberate God better willing, call Saul. I'm sorry. stop it. Uh, that you know, we'll, we'll get back on track with this at some point down the line, and and when we do, that Kim has a far far way to fall. Whereas Jimmy is kind of in a place where, if he's evoking Ignacio and Lalo in that moment, that he gets taken by Jesse and Walter. Uh, has he had too many other encounters uh, since then? Um, and I think that that's a good call that, you know, some years are going to pass. And if those are still the two names, then either he hasn't had much association with a situation like that since then, or uh, Ignacio and Lalo are still active threats for Jimmy, which based on this finale seems unlikely. Yeah. Uh, se- seems like that's something that has to explode uh, relatively quickly in the timeline of where they're at right now. Uh, not necessarily in terms of like amount of episodes that could take 10 episodes to unravel. Uh, but in terms of like the distance from that, um, that moment in time to the moment in time where, where, uh, where Jimmy is taken, uh, that it doesn't seem like it's going to be a lot of time, but that, or it does, that seems like it'll be a lot of time, but that's, that's what I'm trying to drive at is like in the same way that maybe we expected, something sharper to happen to Kim rather than something like deeper and, and like a deepening of the dread, a deepening of like the, the, of the descent uh, that Kim Wexler uh, has found herself upon. Um, Can we deepen the Lalo and Nacho of it all for Jimmy? And I think we ought to pivot into talking about that stuff because it's, you know, this has always been like a split brain show to a degree um, that it's like been the Jimmy story and the Mike story. It's been the the Jimmy story and the the drug world story. And sometimes those two overlap. And this year they overlapped a lot. And that was very deliberate feeling. It felt very intentional. It felt very much like the shows are combining and the show is one now. Um, for the final image of the season to be Lalo Salamanca, 
who has just had his life threatened in the starkest of terms, has lost tons of people, uh, many of whom he was close to, others he was just, you know, giving, like, massive shit to and he used as a human shield. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Incredible. You know, that, Incredible. That Lalo takes Operation out human shield my a ass. full tactical elite assassin squad. The, the guys who are best at what they do, right. With nothing more than hot oil, uh, some some razor-sharp nighttime thinking, uh, and a bathroom tunnel. Uh, and their own weaponry against them, that the final image of the season is that freaking guy marching off into the darkness, having said, don't worry, I know who's responsible for this. Yeah, yeah. and having looked at the drinks and seen uh, his toast with Nacho and not seen Nacho, he knows everything that's involved. Uh, it is brutal. And the is it, great, is it, the great is sound it, moment, too, where the sound gets distorted as he's walking along uh, and all the sound drops out. Just just terrifying. Is it as simple as, yeah, he knows Nacho did this and now he's got to get Nacho? Is it as simple as, yeah, he knows that Don Eladio maybe gave the thumbs up on this or at least Gus Fring was involved and now he's going after Gus Fring? Um, does it verify his suspicions? That some shit went down that Jimmy was yeah. involved in. And does he want to come back to Jimmy? Jimmy very pointedly learns from Mike, who may regret speaking too soon, that Lalo Salamanca is not going to be a problem after tonight. Right. And Jimmy is talking to Kim about how that's a thing. And maybe they're moving in a bolder direction than they would if they knew that the boogeyman still exists. Yeah, it's super, super is dangerous. That, is he marching off? <laughs> to see Mr. and Mrs. Goodman. Like, is that still going on? Because I feel like the show has merged. The show is itself now. The tone at the at the at the at the counter uh when Jimmy and and, and Kim are uh trading impressions of each other and Kevin Wachtel uh, and the tone of the show is is being embodied or Lalo Salamanca himself as a single entity is embodying the tone is personifying the tone of better call Saul. Is that guy not still somehow some way on a collision course with Jimmy McGill? Yes, of course. <laughs> Those are the two you squeeze. Those are the two that you squeeze. Even though Kim was able to buck up her back and push back a little bit, those are the two that you squeeze. You know exactly where they live. You know that something went down with Goodman. You probably know that you got something from him. Now, it can't just be Goodman, obviously. You know Nacho Varga is involved in this. You know you've been coming at the chicken man. So you know the chicken man is probably involved in this as well. And so you're trying to figure out the connections here, and you're trying to unravel that upward you're going to squeeze anybody you can get. You're going to squeeze Papa. You're going to squeeze Kim and Jimmy. You're going to, and by squeezing, I mean probably extract information from them through torture and kill them if you have to, uh, because they haven't already died from the torture. So that is probably the thing that we have to be very concerned about as we're going forward. He, of course, has covered his tracks too by using uh, the elite squad guy uh, to say, "Oh yeah, it was tough, but he's dead. Everything's fine. Yeah, <laughs> we're fine. Gonna, we're fine down here. He how may, are you? He may in fact find Nacho right away." Way, right like right. how far away can nacho really be like was there a car waiting for nacho was there some ability to get away from the compound waiting for nacho uh was there any of that there or did he just run out the gate is he going no, to be running the down the road like get out of here yes exactly just open the gate and go and leave but there but you know he's not calling an uber like he's not getting the cab 
This is right. bad choice road for Nacho for yeah, sure. Yeah, he's on the bad choice road. Yeah. It, it, you're right about the tonal shift, uh, and I think it's fascinating in, uh, encapsulation of this is in the title. Uh, there is another uh, breaking. There is another Better Call Saul episode with the word something in the title, right? Uh, something stupid. Something stupid. And yeah. now we're not we're not doing something stupid anymore. Now we're into something unforgivable you can territory. Forgive something stupid. Yes. You can't something forgive unforgivable. Something unforgivable by exactly. definition. It's unforgivable. Yes. We have transitioned, and that's a scary thought for sure. And it should be scary for all of those characters. Uh, Lala was already concerned about Michael. Michael. He knew Michael was involved the day at the travel wire. He can probably put those pieces together. But he has to know that the chicken man is involved. What I don't think he realizes, uh, and I think this is an interesting thing to talk about here, we had this whole scene, this extended sequence with Don Eladio, very entertaining character. It's always a party there at Don Eladio's, Josh. There's always until some fun ain't. going until on at the pool. He's until really wearing a, a shirt, poison like, party and a shootout. Yeah, it's just a good time. Um, Don Eladio meets Salud. with Nacho, and we have an extended scene with Nacho and Don Eladio, with Don Eladio essentially signing off on Nacho, becoming the new head of the Salamanca family in the United States. Oh, boy. Why did we have this scene if it's just going to be that Nacho's world blew up on him? Why is Don Eladio involved in this at all? Well, because Don Eladio is a fun toy in the toy chest. Okay, and, agree. Uh, and so you play with that when you get the opportunity. Opportunity. Um, yep. And I think that what matters is much less that Nacho survives the Don Eladio test and much more that Nacho tells us what it is he wants, that he wants to live a life where he has respect, but moreover, that he doesn't have to look over his shoulder anymore, which is all he's been doing for the better part of two years or so now. Right. Right. Uh, you know, working for Fring or, or, you know, even before that, when he was trying to kill Hector uh, so that he could uh, save Papa. Um, and I think to have that on the board for us emotionally, because I think a lot of us have already started feeling more emotionally connected to Nacho as a character. I think that the show has recently started to do some really, really strong work in pushing the people who weren't already there to get to that point. And I think to some degree, like maybe it's going to be hard to get people uh, closer to like empathy with Nacho than, than they currently possess if they don't, if they don't possess it yet, short of like making him watch Papa die the way that Jesse had to, you know, see his girlfriend die uh, in in Breaking Bad, which is a spoiler from Breaking Bad, which you should know because you're listening to a Better Call Saul podcast. Um, <laughs> that uh, that to put it out there in in a scene where where Michael Mando, who's just been fantastic as this character, as Nacho, has to survive this moment. You know, he has to pass the Don Eladio test because as Lalo puts it, right? He's like, what happens if what happens if Don Eladio doesn't like me? And yeah. Lalo just looks at him, he's like, eh, you'll be fine. Yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, I'm a socket wrench. Which is great where it's like, let's not talk about that possibility because uh, it really won't be a concern if he doesn't like you. You'll be dead. You know, like, <laughs> you're not going to be here anymore. Um, I think it matters so much less that Ignacio gets the bump up because clearly Lalo knows what's up with Nacho now. And what matters so much more is that Nacho wants nothing more than to live that life where he doesn't have to worry about people like the Salamancas coming for him or Gus Fring coming for him or any of these people coming for him. And he can just be free. And man, much like poor Jesse Pinkman 
getting shoved into that hole in the pit and being forced to cook meth for a year. Who knows like what the Todd of, of Lalo to, to Nacho's Jesse might be. Um, in many ways, Nacho will be lucky if all he gets is like a swift shot to the back of the head. Definitely. That might not be what's coming up. My bet would be this is a show that really likes to make a meal out of tormenting the characters existentially. Um, I think that Nacho is in for a world of hurt, but I don't know that the pain and suffering will end swiftly for him. And that is a horrifying prospect. And I think that that's what the scene is for. And you have Don Eladio there because that's fun. Let's put, let's put Nacho and Don Eladio together. That's fun. Don Eladio being there makes a lot of sense because I think the underrated part, and it's credit to the actor and to the editing uh, of Better Call Saul to see Juan Bolsa, who even in these like just snippets where the camera lingers on him, maybe a half second longer than what you would expect. But it's enough for us to realize Juan Bolsa is hard out on Lalo Salamanca. He is not a Lalo Salamanca fan. He's bad for business. He is a Gus Fring fan because Fring makes that money, Josh. Frank stacks paper for Juan Bolsa like no other, and he is very low risk. Uh, Lalo Salamanca is all risk. He is all glitz and glamour. And of course, Don Eladio loves this. Um, Don Eladio, in a previous scene we've seen, loves money, and he likes the, the money the chicken man brings in more than Hector Salamanca. But Lalo Salamanca is a hero at that party. People love him. He's just walking up, kissing babies. Uh, well, no babies, but he's kissing anything he can. Yeah. He's shaking hands. He says, Charlie Manson. He's just happy to see everybody that's there poolside. And Don Eladio loves Lalo Salamanca. Juan Bolsa does not. And so it will be fascinating, I think, to see how that bigger hammer in the actual cartel plays out vis-a-vis what's Lalo's revenge going to be. Is Juan Bolsa going to back the chicken man? Uh, is he going to back uh, Lalo? How will that really blow back on all these people? Um, fascinating stuff, I think, for sure. And I just, just seeing those moments with Juan Bolsa and Don Eladio, I am, I'm just, it's very clear to me that Juan Bolsa does not like Lalo, but that Don Eladio loves him. Just yeah, loves the time. guy. Big time. Huge yeah. fan. Love Huge the, fan. Uh, Magnum P.I. Yes. Uh, <laughs> everything there was really, really, really fun. I, I loved everything with Lalo this week. Uh, yeah. And like even like the idea, it, it got me really thinking about the, the types of people who do their best thinking uh, at night. You know what I mean? Like and he talks about how like I don't sleep. I sleep maybe two or three hours. A lot of people think like. That's got to make you feel lonely, but no, it's the only time I can think. I get my best ideas this late because everything's so quiet. Uh, and like, I I mostly sleep through the night, Antonio. I try to tuck away around 11 p.m. ish, somewhere in that realm, maybe midnight. Uh, but I've definitely had those nights where like they've been sleepless, and I've gotten out of bed at like 2:30 in the morning or three in the morning, and just like gold strands of gold from the brain out into the world uh, at least at the time it feels that way uh and i i thought that that was just such an interesting take on lala salamanca that really humanized him in a way for me and it, it serves this dual purpose of like it both kind of like deepens him as a human it's a triple purpose as i'm thinking it through and Ooh. i'm sure more, more dimensions beyond that but it's humanizing him as a person of like putting him in that space of like everybody or many people, most people, I would think, 
know what that like what that insomnia brain feels like if not like on a regular basis then at least from time to time it provides an element of horror because here is the monster by the bonfire as as uh nacho is trying to do the eric cartman thing where he is uh all but naked and visibly trying to escape the salamanca compound um and then the the third purpose is it gives you sort of like plausible belief in Lalo Salamanca's ability to turn this shit around against the whole hit squad. Uh, that he's like, no, I'm wide awake. I'm wired. And I know exactly what to do right now because the shit is here and I've prepped for this and it's nighttime and it's my time to go to the bathroom Get underneath the tub, <laughs> go through the tunnel, maybe take half a second to think about how all these people I love are definitely getting wasted. But then I'm going to come back and no one's going to expect me and I'll get the drop on everybody. And I think very cleverly the show um, gives us the escape, but doesn't give us the return uh, and just like allows us to kind of imagine what most of that looked like. Uh, that almost makes him so much scarier that if if we watch the granular ways in which he has prepared his way out uh, of the situation, then you really believe in his genius. And then if you just sort of see like some of like the horrifying ways in which he he overpowers people, but just like a couple select examples, I think that that's just enough like him, like taking the aim at the person further down the tunnel and just like without any remorse, just spraying bullets down the tunnel. Uh, the way that he engages that, the way he engages, engages <gasps> that final guy. Um, if you weren't already just like petrified of Lalo, uh, this episode really does some great work at getting you uh, to, to really fear this guy and fear whatever's coming next for him. And I think it is very compelling to consider some of, okay, so he is, uh, he's down here in Mexico. He's close enough to um to to Don Eladio and Juan Bolsa that you imagine it's likely that there's some further scenes between the two of them uh between the three of them but what does that look like those two characters are both going to survive to breaking bad at least so if he has an axe to grind against them how did they get that off how does that happen without it just being Lalo Salamanca is dispatched very quickly uh, I don't think that that happens if he's alive through the finale I think that that's with intention right we're keeping yeah. that piece on the board so that he could be meaningful in these next 13 episodes, if not all of them, then at least a chunk of them, even if that's like three, that's still like, they still want to move him that much further down the pike. Um, that there's, he has more business to do on bad choice road. Definitely. Um, I'm glad I'm thrilled that we were wrong. I'm, I'm so happy we were wrong. I'm very happy. We were wrong that Lalo, uh, we thought Lalo would die in the finale and everything about the finale was like, okay, so this is like the, the Lalo Salamanca exit story. Um, and we didn't get that. And I'm psyched about that because now we get to see more Tony Dalton, who's remarkable in this role. And we get to see what is he going to do to some of the people that we really, really like. And that's going to be horrifying to watch, but he just brings such a different energy to the breaking bad universe. Um, than some of the other villains that we've seen, he's like, you know, he's like smart Tuco, you know, he's like somebody with like that sort of like giddy danger, but also like Gus Fring levels of intelligence. And so, I think that they've really, they've earned that with this character and the portrayal of the character. He's faked his death uh, now at this point. He will get away. How with, long does that last though? How much time does that buy him? 
this is what I want to know. Do you think there's a chance that Lalo Salamanca was also then still alive in the Breaking Bad timeline, in hiding somewhere, somewhere deep in Mexico? Is he a loose end? Uh, is there a possibility, Josh, just however remote, that we save the Saul character for a, ba- a Breaking Bad prequel? Are we saving Lalo Salamanca for a Breaking Bad sequel? Uh, and like not dealing with him in Better Call Saul. Right. He's not he's not going to be dealt with. He's going to he's going to do something and maybe disappear and we won't know his fate in Breaking Bad. We won't have resolved that in Better Call Saul. He's off the table, he's in hiding, he's somewhere in Mexico. He's not involved in the events of the Chicken Man and Heisenberg for various reasons. Reasons that we will find out, Josh, in Breaking Lalo or Better Call Lalo <laughs> or I don't know, Lalo's your uncle, whatever it's called. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> Lalo's your uncle? I don't know. Lalo no. Uh... Yeah, Lalo no. I hope not. You I don't want to not. see a Breaking Bad sequel centered around Tony Dalton and Lala. The character's good, but not that good. No, we don't need to see good. more uh, from this front. We're going to deal with the story, you think, in the context of Better Call Saul. hope so. Hope 13 so. episodes. Maybe not all of them include Lalo, but some of them are going to. And he's the, the fact manifest- that any of them He's the manifestation will. of the show. He's yeah. the man. He, he's, he's, he's become a really excellent poster man uh, for the, uh, the, the, the bad choice wrote you know he is he is the one who knocked last week and he was summoned by jimmy he was summoned into jimmy's world uh he represents in such a literal way all of these things that jimmy has brought upon his house he's the perfect better call saul villain in the way that um your protagonist on better call saul is funnier in many ways. He's still a tragic character, much like Walter White, but he's funnier and he's lighter uh, than than Walter White at times. Um, this is like if if the adversary for Walter White was Gus Fring, uh, who was like this cool, calm, collected, business minded, uh, hyper intelligent, you know, meth overlord. Like that was the perfect person to pit against Walter White because it was just like a mirror version of him. Uh, it was just like two, two of the same. Uh, and that's what made that battle so powerful throughout season four that like tonally, at least Lala really matches Jimmy. Um, it's meant to be part of this show. I feel pretty strongly about that. I know that like, like there's the temptation to do like the Negan thing. And this is going to be like the Negan spinoff that Robert Kirkman has threatened with like the walking dead comic books. Can you do like the Lalo spinoff? Yeah, that could be fun. He's a very fun character, but it's so much more satisfying. It's such a better choice. If you just bring that story to its rightful end here with these 13 episodes, don't hold him out. Don't hold him for the next thing. That's why these shows have been as good as they are is they don't save anything for the swim back. They keep it. They keep it in play here. Uh, I would be really surprised if if Lalo doesn't play a massive role in the final season, and I'd be unless they can find like a really strong way to do it. Uh, I would be pretty out on the idea of a Lalo spinoff. I'm not saying I'm in or out. Uh, I understand what you're saying, and I agree with it. I I do wonder when you talk about not saving anything for the swim back. I do wonder if it's the opposite, if maybe there's some regret uh, for some of the choices that they've made 
And by making a prequel and by realizing that they're put themselves in these situations, we've talked a lot. Uh, I know these guys sp- got to move on, man. And I know, <laughs> I know, but maybe maybe they have friends and families in New yeah. Mexico at this point. They have crews that live there. They love being there. Uh, maybe they want to continue to work there. They can stay. Maybe they, can they want to continue with, to work there. They can come up with something new. Nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, if Walter White and Gus Fring are gone from the Albuquerque drug trade in uh, the world of better calls in the world of breaking bad nature abhors a vacuum somebody's got to fill that uh so i don't know i i i'm not saying it's likely i just think that it's interesting to think about as a possibility uh like i said part of me is i i agree with you guys they have that everybody should move on whatever i mean i agree on that level at least somewhat they joke Vince about Gilligan it a lot has said as much too and they joke about it a lot. They joke yeah. about like, oh, we're going to do this next. We're going to do that next. Uh, but I, I do, I do just think that there is, there is at least some world where they're, they're leaving cards on the table. Who, who knows what happens? They're at least leaving cards on the table in that regard. One of the things that has bothered me about the more we get to know about Gus Fring, and I know you're not on the same page with me about this, is I feel differently about the events of Breaking Bad in light of everything I know from Better Call Saul at this point. Um, not so much about the Jimmy McGill part. Like, yeah, like, like I said, he has experienced a lot of what he's experienced now uh, to be the Jimmy McGill of Better Call Saul. The slide is not that drastic at this point. Yeah, he's a skeezier guy, uh, especially in public. We don't see his private moments as Saul Goodman, but he's a much skeezier guy in Breaking Bad uh, and he's gross and he's just a kind of a, a slime bag a lot more, especially publicly. Um, but as far as that goes, I don't think we have that much to go uh, in that realm. We have to separate him from Kim or we have to more clearly compartmentalize the Saul Goodman uh, law attorney uh, from Jimmy McGill with Kim Wexler. But what I don't think we have done is I think what we've done now by personalizing and humanizing some of these other characters more is that the story with uh, Walter White hits differently now. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. And I'm not sure how the creators feel about it. They're the ones writing it. But I bet if I bet if they had their druthers, they wish they had saved some for the swim back in some instances. And I'm not Shouldn't sure Lalo would be that. Camino, then, you know? Yeah, maybe. I know. But again, what will you do for money? Or what will you do for the opportunity to shoot in New Mexico uh, on film? Like, what will you do for these opportunities to to do these things uh, and is there a possibility a lot of people when Breaking Bad was made said that Better Call Saul shouldn't exist so here we are uh, I would never rule out the possibility that they could continue to make compelling television with these characters especially if they weren't painted into a corner sure. by outcomes that were predetermined sure. I'm so, not I sure mean, Lalo's the way to do that I don't th- I don't think Lalo's necessarily the way to do it to base a show around him but I think that you you mentioned something that's interesting to me is the vacuum nature loves a void uh, it's got to fill the void um and what comes after Heisenberg could be a compelling story, depending on the characters that are thrown in there. If it's got to be largely new cast, can you do that in a satisfying way? Um, is there a Skyler White story to tell? That's really cool. I'm open to that. Um, but I would I would much prefer them putting their very, very well honed energy uh, into a totally different universe that could absolutely still shoot in Albuquerque because I think that they they know that uh, that world so well and they bring it to life so gorgeously that I would I would love to see more of that. And it's just a I mean you talk about The Walking Dead, uh, Robert Kirkman spinoffs, what have you. Uh, AMC is in the Vince Gilligan and Peter Gold game, uh, and AMC is in the Walking Dead game. Uh, so I'm not saying that AMC would I would bet AMC would be open to it. Sure, uh, it's and a AMC Sony might thing push though, it. right? Yep. You know, like you know if 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 it's 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 Gilligan's deal with Sony that really matters more. 
and I think that they would be inclined to just do whatever it is he wants to do. Yeah, Battle uh, so Creek. It, yeah, <laughs> you know, like if Gilkin wants to do another, yeah, I, I don't know how involved in Battle Creek he was. Was he like mega involved in that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. We're, I we're love getting my boy pretty, Dean Winters, but I didn't. We're getting pretty far afield uh, yeah. with mayhem there. Uh, yeah. But but what? I, but it's just. It's fascinating to me because these shows echo uh, each other so much, and there are these sounds that that are made in one scape and resonate in another, uh, and not only in the context of their own shows, but in others. So uh, I can't help but feel there might be when there are ripples, uh, when a rock is thrown into the water in Better Call Saul, that those ripples can can go into Breaking Bad. We already know that's the case. Um, they can certainly outlast Breaking Bad, and that's a question of are there any ripples here uh, that they could revisit? I think Tony. Dalton, of course, is a character. Of course, Kim Wexler is another character that we right. could sure. that we could really continue to mine out, depending on where we put her and where she ends up. And she is one whose echoes are resonant here. I thought it was really fascinating. Um, just kind of emptying my notebook very quickly as we wrap up here. Um, I thought the conversation. If you think about, I was thinking about um, the conversation Kim that Wexler um, sequel. By the way. That I so, am here for. Yeah. So it could happen. Like there are yeah. these characters who, you know, if you're saving things for the swim back, like that's a thing that you save uh, and that you didn't swim on the way over. You know, you saved it all there. That's a thing. Like well, that's, that's because that's, she's like, she's a line, like the line's shooting up. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like that's continuing. I think that, I think that you can have her be very satisfying here. We're missing your Saul. drug metaphors there. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> shooting up lines. Have- I don't know what you do to meth, so... Uh, yeah, you smoke it, I believe. I guess, is the main uh, way of, uh, of of ingesting that. Um, yeah. But I was reminded of uh, the conversation in um, Season 3, Episode 7, um, Expenses, uh, where uh, Kim and Jimmy are... Jimmy's had uh, some real issues with Chuck. It's right after the Chuck McGill trial, um, and they're at a bar... And Kim is a little unsure about how she has treated Chuck. Jimmy is all in and he sees a guy that reminds him of Chuck and he goes to a very dark place and he says, you know what we could do to that mark is we could, we could sell him a scam credit card. You know, all you'd have to do is look at him and he'd be all in. And then Jimmy goes off on the, off the res and he goes to a dark place and Kim's like, we're just talking about this, right? We're not really going to do it. They have almost the same conversation with their legendary pillow talk, as you called it in this episode, when Kim is talking about what to do to Howard. And it is really Jimmy who's basically saying like, Hey, we're just joking, right? Like we're not going to really do this to Howard. Like he doesn't deserve it. Like, so it is fascinating to me the way these things echo uh, and the way that you can have something happen in one season of the show that echoes and in is, is mirrored or it is resonant in a different way in a later season of the show. And I think of course that's happening across the shows. Uh, and it really just echoes throughout the stories of these characters. So I think anything's on the board. I think they can continue to back reference themselves. I think they can plant seeds in the prequel that, that are fertile for the, the actual Breaking Bad. Of course, they're going back and they're they're uh, crossing a lot of T's and dotting a lot of I's uh, that they had introduced in Breaking Bad, like how Emilio became uh, an informant and things like that. So they're they're really cross pollinating a ton as we approach the final season of Better Call Saul. I got to imagine when you talk about saving things for the swim back, they're going to wipe whatever they've got left on that board. And yeah. say, whatever we had left that we wanted to talk about in Better Call Saul, because of the things we talked about in Breaking Bad, we're doing it. Like, we got to get that done. So 
I think as we look forward to a season six of Better Call Saul, we should probably consider from a prequel standpoint, what do we think there still is on the table? Uh, and I'd love to hear some feedback from people yes. about what people think there is still Good on the table. Thing I was going to say that we've got that coming up. From the context of Better Call Saul, uh, from the context of Breaking Bad, like what is there that you think Better Call Saul still needs to hit? Or are we on its own at this point? Do we only have to close up our own loopholes from Better Call Saul? Josh, my question is, are, are we to the point with the darkness of this show and Lalo still being around? Are we going to see the makeup crew, uh, makeup TV film crew again? Are we going to see Jimmy's film school kids again? Hope or are so. they done? No, they're done. You're done. Uh, How about Bill Oakley? Are we getting more Bill Oakley? I, ho- I hope we're getting all of these people. Yeah. Yes. You have to, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if Lalo is marching around out there ready no. to take everybody's scalps. Like no, you still, still have to. They're still on the board. If they can come up with an inventive way to to bring those people back into the mix, those are those are all still people who are still on the board. What if and Jimmy the, is staging it, some kind of large event that includes the makeup and film crew and includes Bill Oakley and Lalo right. kills all of them? Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, I think I think like. Uh, could could Jimmy like fake Kim Wexler's death on TV or something like oh. that? <laughs> you know, an interesting question for me. I mean, it, we had always speculated that uh, that Kim would leave Jimmy because of his antics and his shenanigans. Could Jimmy leave Kim? He wanted to in this episode. He, he was ready he to end it. I think yeah. that we're I think we're headed in that direction. I think so too. I think where Jimmy's the one who pulls the plug, not yeah. Kim. I think that's likely. Yeah. Well, well, if there's anything else that people want to get to us or feedback they have or thoughts about what yeah. they want to see out of a final season of Better Call Saul, how, how should they reach out to us, Josh, in advance of our final uh, feedback show? Here? Cool. And we don't have a date yet scheduled on recording that, so that means you definitely have days to, to send stuff in. I can't imagine we're, we're talking uh, we're talking Saul again until at least the weekend, maybe next week a little bit. Um, so plenty of time. BCS at postshowrecaps.com. It's our email address. Uh, you can you can send in your feedback there. Uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter at Round Howard, like Ron Howard. That's me. Uh, or at AC Mazzaro with how many Z's and how many R's? Two Z's, one R, and one unusual connection to Tuco that will make Don Eladio very skeptical, but also laugh. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. one so, of my favorite moments of the episode. So a, a lot to to still chew on. I think, uh, like I, I definitely don't feel ready to put this all to rest. I'm really excited to get Rob's take on everything. I know that Rob's been watching along. He's been listening to the podcast as well as he can. Um, so I think it's gonna be really fun to get uh to get his take on everything from the season, and also to do that in conjunction with uh with people's feedback and i think uh coming up with ways to think about like sequelizing the the breaking bad universe um the more and more we talk about it the more and more open to at least entertaining the conversation i am jeez uh, i'm not a stakeholder in this and i swayed you in like five minutes like well, you're no, you're gonna be I, all in when they actually come up with an the people who are paid to do this come up with a good idea for it you know, I'm I'm a person who I need to sit with an idea for a while. I'll, I'll probably tell you something very declarative and definitive about something, and then three days later, or even three minutes later, Hank Schrader uh, style, where I guess it's Michael Dawson style, I'll have a totally different take. Uh, so, like, the thing <laughs> I haven't needs- noticed this about you before. Oh, really? This no. is new. Uh, yeah, this is brand uh, new. This is definitely not something that you've picked up on. Never. Uh, so, like, that's happening right now. Uh, and so I'm, I'm thinking about some of the ideas and the, the more I think about them, the more I think, uh, that they're all probably bad. And then I'll think about them again, think that maybe some of them are actually good. Uh, so let's dig into that. Uh, we got that in the feedback show. I'm not, not don't dig into my, the psychology of me uh, and my decision-making and, uh, my, my, uh, my, my fickle nature. Um, but let us dig into, uh, the possibilities of what could exist beyond 
both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Um, I'm open to that discussion. I think the feedback would be uh, a great forum to do that, especially with uh, with Rob on the horn. I'm excited about that. Uh, and as unexcited and uh, worried as I am about a murderous Lalo rampaging through our characters' lives here, I'm excited to talk about the possibility of that with Rob and with everyone's feedback. Uh, we're so thankful to everybody who listened uh, throughout this season, uh, and we're very excited to talk about what your thoughts were, everybody, about the finale and about this show as we stand on the precipice of a season six of Better Call Saul, hopefully not 18 months away, uh, like the break between seasons four and five. Uh, but whenever it comes, uh, we will, uh, God willing, inshallah, be here to talk to you about that. Uh, anything else, Josh, before we wrap? No, not a thing. Nothing from me either. Thanks again, everybody. I uh, look forward to talking to you again on the Feedback Show. Bye. Bye.